This is the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome, I'm Jackie Forrest. Hi, I'm Peter Trudzakian, and welcome to our podcast. We've got a lot to talk about this week, don't we? There has been so much going on in the Canadian energy space. We had uh, Husky, uh, hostile takeover of Meg announcement on uh, yeah, was Monday, the weekend. Wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, over the weekend. The NAFTA, we yep. had the, the, the whole NAFTA deal. We're going to talk about what that means from an energy perspective. And of course, we had the LNG Canada announcement. That, yes. was, that was really big. That was huge. Highly anticipated announcements. We'll talk about what it means for our Western Canada. Then there was a Trans Mountain announcement uh, today, Wednesday, from the minister saying they're going to have an open-ended consultation process. We want to talk about that at the end, but why don't you, uh, Jackie, talk about the whole NAFTA thing? Right. Well, first of all, this is going to be tricky. Uh, it is called the USMCA, so you'll have to try uh, to memorize that. That does not have that. a ring to it like NAFTA, I'll tell you that. <laughs> US, and, and also, you know, they got two letters and Mexico and Canada only got one, which tells you something know, about you the go. agreement. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so anyway, USMCA, first of all, you know, it was really expected that the energy sector um, would continue to have the same sort of deal as it always had, no tariffs on um, imports of oil or gas, both ways. You know, it's forgotten that we actually do buy a lot of natural gas and even oil in eastern oh, Canada. Oh, in eastern Canada, yeah, right? yeah. Um, so there was a lot of logic for free trade continuing. I don't think that was really... A concern by a lot of people that that no, would be No, I mean, I, th- I think at the end of the day, in the energy space, there's not really much that is affected. In fact, you know, putting tariffs on oil or for something like that would be completely unpopular because the price of gasoline would just rise in the United States just before the midterm elections. I don't think so. But there were a lot of other things that happened with the uh, the deal, didn't it? Right. I mean, it, the real concern was the auto industry. And, and it, it is concerning. If you look at all of the uh, exports from Canada to the U.S., about 20% are um, manufactured things like autos, aircrafts, vessels. Um, so the fact that uh, that you know is escaping tariffs is a big deal. It is. It's, it's particularly a big deal for Central Canada, Ontario, and uh, certainly aircraft stuff out of Quebec. I think even in Manitoba, there's some airspace stuff going on. Right, right. So, but the big news was uh, more on that whole supply chain dairy thing. Right, and you know the the it's a fairly small part of our GDP, a fairly small small part. Well, there's very little trade, obviously, today. So, you know, in, in the end, I think it's still a good deal. You dealt with the auto sectors, the energy sector, which is duty-free. Now, the steel and aluminum tariffs is the one that continues to have um, to be around. Well, that's problematic for a lot of different industries, all the way from the construction business, you know, building condominiums. They use a lot of steel, certainly in the oil and gas business. Uh, they use a lot of steel for construction. So we'll see where that goes. At the moment, they're maintaining the, the, the tariffs that the Americans imposed on many countries worldwide. Um, we'll see. It is an important one. You know, I, we wrote a piece, when was it? It was about six months ago, maybe right, maybe yeah. less, that uh, putting into perspective the steel and aluminum trade, each one is about $10 billion between the United States and Canada, so 20 between the two. The trade of petroleum products, the trade of petroleum products is like $130 billion. I mean, it, it just completely dwarfs pretty much everywhere, uh, everything else. It doesn't dwarf, however, though, the auto business, uh, that auto parts business, which was really probably the most important thing to follow to this USMC, what is it, USMCA? MCA, MCA, that's right, uh, USMCA. Is that the the auto industry seemed to, uh, is continuing to flow uh, uh, under this this new deal, so that's important. Autos, by the way, is about a $70 billion 
back and forth. Right. So, uh, you know, this was a major uncertainty for the Canadian economy. I think, you know, it gets rid of that uncertainty. Um, and, you know, it has been something that's way, been weighing our currency down. But interestingly enough, with the news of the deal, we had a very small change. The Canadian dollar uh, is now about 78 cents um, U.S. per Canadian dollar, where before it was 77 cents. So, you know, the NAFTA isn't the only thing that's keeping the Canadian dollar low. No, it isn't. It isn't. Uh, but the deal is important. Like this deal was really important because we talk a lot in this country now about competitiveness and the ability to attract capital. And we know in the oil and gas business that it's heavily influenced by regulatory issues, differentials, et cetera, et cetera. But the broad overlay, the broad overlay on all this really, I think, was NAFTA because foreign investors looking into North America and in Canada in particular were saying, well, why, how, how can I invest in this place without this sort of deal? So it was really important to get this deal done. I totally agree. I totally yeah. agree. It creates certainty. And even though the energy space seemed unlikely to uh, get bogged down with new tariffs, it was a concern that I definitely heard from yeah. investors. I mean, it's, it's not done yet, right? I mean, they've got to go through all the hoops in the True. U.S. Uh, yeah. congressional thing. But it looks it looks promising. And uh, I mean, there's some other things here. There's dispute resolution and the issue about uh, whether or not we need to get permission uh, to trade, to do trade deals with other countries that are non-free market, such as China. Um, I always thought China now is free market, but anyway, it seems uh, uh, the uh, permission is still required. Yeah, but you know we've come a long ways. A few weeks ago, there was you know doubts we'd even have a trade agreement with the U.S. So yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a it's a really positive development in, this week in uh, the Canadian economy. Yeah. So let's move on now to the. Uh, hostile takeover by Husky of a mega oil sands player. Um, They offered a 37% premium to Meg's price. Um, And uh, no, this this isn't the first time we've seen this over the last few years. Well, particularly in the last year, what is a year and a half since the uh, Suncor takeover, the... uh, the, Well, we had the the CNRL buying Shell assets. That was the really big one. Uh, It's a consolidation trend. And, And really, the oil sands have become a big player game. I mean, it's a consolidation play. The growth potential of the space in the absence of pipelines uh, is really on growth of profitability, not so much on growth of volume. Mm -hmm. So to be able to consolidate, turn it into like a full-scale manufacturing mentality and operation, drive down costs, and uh, just boost the profitability cash flow. That's the game, and you do mm-hmm. that with scale. You get the economies of scale like that. And, yeah. uh, you know, we haven't seen many deals in the oil and gas sector in Canada this year, um, and so it's interesting now seeing uh, some some yeah. movements, right? Yeah, I think that that's, uh, that's a positive. I mean, it's uh, there's a lot of uh, shares in this deal. It's not really driving a lot of liquidity in the capital markets yet. We'll see. It's a, it's a oil sands play dominantly. Mm-hmm. We, I think we're going to see some consolidation outside of the oil sands too. Mm-hmm. That, that is yet to come. For similar uh, reasons. The, the markets, you know, usually when you get big consolidations like this historically, uh, there's a share price appreciation, like the tide raises all boats in the anticipation of other deals yet to come. We didn't really see that too much. Um, but it may come yet. It may come yet as the realization sets in that consolidation is a necessity in a market-constrained uh, oil and gas industry. Right, right. 
Okay, so f- watch this space, see how it unfolds. Okay, but the big, big news this week uh, is the LNG Canada announcement, uh, basically announcing that they were going to go forward with a 2 BCF per day phase one of their project that would move gas from uh, BC, uh, maybe even some Alberta gas, uh, about 700 kilometers to the coast, liquefy it, and send it to Asia. So- yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. I almost have to slap myself uh, to <laughs> think it was true because I've been following the space. I think since 2008, yes. you know, thinking that uh, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. You know, what's really interesting is that it was only about three or four years ago that there was, uh, we counted them, didn't they? It was about 19 different proposals and projects oh, on the yeah, West Coast. Oh, yeah, there was going to be at least that many, right? And they were all looking very likely. And, uh, you know, at, at that time, we were actually uh, viewed to be ahead of the U.S. We had more projects. We did. And we're so far behind. Now, today, with the projects under construction in the U.S., they're looking to have about 10 BCF per day of capacity by 2020. Ten. And what's the LNG Canada This is going to be two. It's and two. It, by the way, it won't be around in 2020 yet. It's going to, they're saying before... Um, 2025. Um, so still a ways off, but we definitely lost the race yeah. here. Um, and, and there was a view that Canada can't compete. You know, that was sort of the narrative. Um, so I was really excited to see with the Shell announcement, um, you know, they put out some economics uh, that showed that Canada, this project, they believe will deliver gas in the range of $7 per MMBTU into Asia, where a Greenfield Gulf Coast project, that's where all those mm-hmm, US projects mm-hmm. are coming from, uh, is closer to eight. That's include the transportation because you have That's to go everything. through the, you have to go through the Panama Canal all the way to the Pacific, which really adds uh, several days or how many days does it add? I can't remember. They're about uh, eighteen days transit time, and we're about half that. Half. Um, so, oh. like, we've got a huge advantage there. Now, our cost. The, the other interesting thing they put out the cost of building the liquefaction plant. That's almost twice what it's costing in the Gulf Coast, but they're still cheaper because we've got some advantages the Americans don't, right? That shorter shipping distance. The other thing is they're buying the gas at Henry Hub, which is about $3 uh, today, and our gas is less than half of that today. That's an an interesting thing. You know, a lot of when the the oil price crashed, right, in 2014, it also pulled down a lot of the global LNG prices because they were linked. Right, right. right. And and there was this notion that uh, everything should be priced off Henry Hub. Oil is going to 20 bucks. We don't want to price off oil because it's never going back up again and so on. So all those guys that did deals at Henry Hub plus whatever, whatever Right, they're different, is. yeah, different Right, so now, they're look, now uh, the sellers into that market aren't looking nearly as good, I think, with the oil price being up. So we don't really know the details, do we, of the LNG Canada deal on the other side. But is, well, is it Henry Hub Plus or is it ACO Plus or what, what's the deal? Well, it is a little bit unique. You know, there's five different partners and each of them are responsible for marketing their own gas. So it is a little different in that um, some of them are actually consumers. Um, Shell, you know, would just market that through their system. So it's not quite as transparent as like the Sabine Pass model right, where, right. you know, you knew you got $3 plus a Delta. Um, but I think the most interesting thing is this narrative that Canada can't compete uh, has been proven wrong. It's been validated by this Shell FID and the data they put out yesterday well, that shows that we can deliver at $7 per MMBTU into yeah. Asia. Uh, so. it's, I mean, why am I not surprised? I mean, the whole notion of we can't compete particularly at the rock level uh, is, is, you know, that we never used to be able to. We used to be called high-cost producers. Uh, now this stuff basically comes out of the ground almost for free, it seems, you know. And, you know, what I find amazing, what I find amazing is that we have some of the lowest oil prices and some of the lowest gas prices in the world, 
right? Yeah. In Canadian dollars, like well, what is the price of natural gas in Canada? Dollar fifty. Right about a dollar fifty. Dollar fifty. I mean, even per gigajoule. I, I mean, yeah. think about that. That's the price, and production isn't falling. No, right. and it's been like that for the last year, and we've right. had robust right. production in, in right. the face of that low so price. So that tells me you can bring it out of the ground at that price, right? And so to think that it is among the most competitive in the world from the rocks through this most modern of LNG facilities, which we'll talk about in a minute, mm-hmm. yep. uh, uh, and the shipping uh, is a shorter transit time to Asia than anything the Gulf Coast can uh, can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's amazing. It is amazing. And, you know, the interesting part is this was the economics of the first phase. And they talked in the materials that the second phase is actually going to have a lot of uh, advantages because, you know, they're leveraging some of the infrastructure right. they're putting in in the first phase. So the economics are going to get better from here. Mm-hmm. And I hope that this sort of is a catalyst for other investors to sort of look at Canada and say, hey, you know what? This can compete. And, you know, maybe coming to Canada uh, makes a lot of sense. There's definitely, we have 300 years of gas at our current consumption rate based on the resource we have. So there's plenty of opportunity for us to grow. And the technology is such that that number is only going to go up, right? Basically, there's almost an endless amount of natural gas at what, you say $2.00? I might yeah. be inclined to go a little bit higher, but whatever it is, it's certainly not six or seven, which is what we were used to uh, only a few few years a uh, few years ago. But when you say second phase, second phase of uh, shell, what does that right. mean? Is so that the second two- train, third train, fourth train? What are yeah, basically what they did is they um, sanctioned uh, the first phase, which is two BCF per day, but they actually have an approval and, you know, a site development plan that could get them to four BCF per day, but they've only sanctioned this first phase. But in this first phase, they um, also paid for, you know, some infrastructure that will make the second right. um, two BCF per day that comes on, you know, more economic. Well, well let, let's just pair it back to that two BCF a day that's going to come on. That is so consequential to the Western Canadian sedimentary basin. I mean, two BCF a day on what, what production are we at right now? We're 16 BCF per day. Right. So two on 16, what is that? It's like 15 percent. Trying to get like, math here, Peter. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> try to do the math in my head. I don't know. It's like I, 50, I've done yeah. four BCF. That's 25 percent. But whatever it is. Production. But I mean, you, you look at bringing on two BCF a day, a train in the Gulf of Mexico on 80 BCF a day of production. Yeah. Like that's just, it's not even, it's, it's just a dent Whereas for us, it's extremely meaningful in terms of our takeaway capacity. Then you go to 4 BCF a day on 16, and uh, you're basically bumping up your uh, your, your capacity. It's 25% uh, yeah. boost. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I did the math on that one. Uh, yeah, awesome, if we get to 4 awesome. BCF. Yeah. So, um, and I think there's potential for more to come. So that is really exciting. Now, the contentious part of this announcement, not everybody was happy as happy about it as we are. Um, there were people that were concerned with uh, the G- greenhouse gas emissions that come from building this facility. And, you know, Canada signed up uh, to a target to reduce their emissions and building a big and big project yeah. like that makes it harder to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, greenhouse gases go up with any sort of infrastructure project. It doesn't matter if it's energy or cement or petrochemicals or frankly, uh, some other, uh, a server farm, you know, like it, it's, uh, it's, it's just the, uh, the nature of building infrastructure projects. But you're right. I mean, this is uh, the tension that's out there, uh, which I'm sure we'll explore on later episodes of our podcast, that the Paris Agreement wants to reduce global emissions by a certain amount. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so everybody, every country, whatever it is, 192 countries commit to reductions, except for the United States, of course. But anyway, put the 191 or whatever it is. Um, so we want to act locally by keeping our emissions capped, but not 
really globally. The issue is a global issue. And here's a situation where natural gas from Canada can make a meaningful dent in reducing coal emissions from China. Right? So it's, it, it's an international approach to achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement, which I argue we need to do as quickly as possible. Right. You know, and, and Peter wrote, uh, you wrote a great uh, blog on our site this yeah. week on this topic, arcenergyinstitute.com. But basically, uh, that's the, if we really want to achieve a very fast transition, uh, we need to do the things that we can do more most quickly. And yeah, coal to natural gas. If you're talking about uh, an older coal plant, you had put in there about a 70% well, yeah, yeah. savings in terms of uh, the greenhouse gas emissions for energy output for natural gas over the old coal plant. I mean, the, the, the conversion of burning coal to electricity, I don't know, if, if you're lucky, it's like 25 to 30% efficient. And all the emissions and, and soot that goes with it in some, old, some of these older plants, especially in, in Asia. And you bring in a clean, modern natural gas plant, double the efficiency, half the carbon intensity, natural gas versus coal, and you can get a 70% reduction in emissions. I mean, I'll take that, and you can do it quickly and with scale. Uh, you know, that's my argument, is that uh, if we're going to achieve these goals in the Paris Agreement, which I, I'm hoping we do, um, we can't wait around and, and chip away at this, and well, we need scalable solutions. What about the argument that uh, we'd be better off instead of locking into this 50-year asset of this power plant fired by natural gas, we should just switch immediately to uh, renewable energy backed up by batteries and, you know, avoid dependency on fossil fuels for another 50 years. Well, that's nice. Uh, you know, renewable energy with batteries is uh, becoming more cost competitive. But, you know, by the time you become cost competitive and you're able to ramp up manufacturing capacity and installation and all that stuff, the natural gas solution is far faster, far more scalable, and natural gas and coal have historically always competed head-to-head. And natural gas at these lower costs is demonstrating that it can push coal out quickly in places like the United States, places like Europe, and even in places like Asia. I mean, the Chinese are doing it. Mm -hmm. We just need to help accelerate it even more. 15% 15% increase in their gas inc- uh, demand That's last year. Yeah. Um, and, and to your point, uh, these solutions don't exist today economically at scale. So in the meantime, why wouldn't we reduce right. our emissions now? We need to reduce um, And, you know, the, the argument which you brought up earlier about the locking in, I mean, the fear in the uh, decarbonization camps or the more hawkish camps is, okay, you're, you're going to put in this LNG terminal and it's going to linger for 40, 50 years. Uh, and therefore, we're never going to get rid of it. Well, I, I, I don't find that argument has merit. We live in an age where things can be substituted out, put out of business very quickly, right? even in the world of energy. And so if something better comes along 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, fine, right? Yeah, it, it'll get substituted out. That, that's not our concern. Our concern today is to reduce emissions. Let's get on with it. Because if you look at... Three years since that Paris Agreement was signed. Three years, yeah. right? December. And if you look at the, you look at the charts, right? You, yeah, you, of course. You, you, yeah. You, you look at the charts. There is no improvement in uh, the reduction of fossil fuels. They're growing at the fastest rate ever, and there is certainly no improvement in the primary goal. The primary goal, which is a reduction of emissions. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting. Um, I just came back from that trip to China. Um, and they have done everything to try to slow down the growth of coal. 
Um, but because their primary energy demand grew 3% last year, um, and natural gas grew 15, of course, but they still had a bit of growth in coal last year. And so oh, it's, um, it, it's yeah. very, very hard to stop uh, the growth of coal, um, yeah. even and, when you try really hard. And I think we can agree. I mean, you saw it firsthand. I've been to China. Like when they put their mind to something, they do it fast. So you saw electric buses, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and things like that. But still, I mean, it's just like 20, what, 27, 28 million vehicles a year that are coming out, majority of which are internal combustion engines. Electricity demand going up as the population gets wealthier and wealthier. And, and, and so it's, it's not just a matter of mere substitution. It's a matter of sort of keeping up with this and ensuring that at the same time, the emissions are going down. The only way that I see clear to doing it at scale, near term, as fast as possible, is pushing out coal with natural gas. We have it. We're competitive. It's the way to go. Yeah. I want to add one other thing just before I leave this topic. Uh, This idea that it's just being used in power gen. Um, You know, I'd put something out on the site recently that showed internationally only 30% of all the gas that is consumed is used for power gen. One third. One third. Two thirds goes where? It goes to industrial uses, uh, home heating, cooking. Um, it's used in transformation, which is basically those combined heat and power. So you can't really you know, replace those with alternatives. So anyway, I guess the point is there's lots of uses for natural gas in Asia that have nothing to do with power gen. And I, it's hard to not see those grow. And I think Canada has to be part of that. Well, here too. Um, it's not only Asia. I mean, it's just like two-thirds of natural gas. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's the same thing, right? It's the same we just thing. don't have the it same growth. It goes to my uh, polyester suit. It goes to whatever, right? Well, and a lot of natural gas is used, you know, not, you know, the petrochemicals are often made for methylene and, and propane and stuff, but the natural gas is used in the industrial process. It's used in the refining process. And so, you know, we don't have uh, an economic uh, alternative necessarily near term for those uses of natural right. gas. And so, you know, it's it, the argument isn't just about uh, backing out coal in power generation, there's a lot of uses for natural gas that I think will be around for a long time. Oh, they will. So we're going to, I know we're going to be talking more about this, but let's move on to that uh, other final piece of news. Yeah. Uh, Uh, I think that was today, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. What what was on the wire? Well, lots has been going on, obviously, with the Trans Mountain Pipeline, not a contentious issue to to finish off with today. Um, But as many of you following it know that the feds agreed to purchase the pipeline at the end of August, uh, ironically, the same day that the feds took ownership, uh, we had this court decision that quashed the project's approval. Yeah. Two uh, issues there. One was a failure to consider how tanker traffic can impact the marine ecosystem. Right. And number two is insufficient uh, First Nation Indigenous consultation. consultations. Consultations, right. yeah. Yeah. So last week we got some news that the government would proceed with review of how the pipe could impact that marine ecosystem. And, and they gave a 22-week timeline, which would put you uh, somewhere kind of in the late January, early February timeframe mm-hmm. um, for a decision on that. Now, they hadn't really... Uh, committed to um, what they were going to do necessarily at that time. They just sort of put out that they were going to do this work around the marine issue. So the big news today was that they actually kind of came out and said what their next steps will be and uh, basically announced that they're not going to challenge this court decision. They're going to try to um, address uh, the failures um, and go Mm -hmm. forward, you know, with Mm -hmm. the marine ecosystem study and the First Nations consultation. Yeah, it's, uh, okay, that's fine. That was always recognized as an option uh, of all the options. You know, Supreme Court challenge would be an option. Right. Uh, so that's off the table now. Uh, Colin the bulldozers, uh, 
uh, was an option. So that's uh, that's not being done. So we're going with option number three, which is okay. Let's follow the process and and, and play it through, and right. and that's fine, except for this open ended uh, consultation process, right? Right. I think that the news today that the fact uh, that there was no timeline given. For I, I think that's the most problematic thing. Yeah. No, no. Full circle back to the USMCA, you know, the, the, the new NAFTA. You know, we spoke about how investment decisions and, and the propensity for investment to happen depends upon certainty, certainty certainly in time, right, when decisions are going to be made. And you keep it open and uh, it, it just becomes too vague. Like, why can't we put some sort of timeline on these issues? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I'm certainly on board with Indigenous consultations and so on. But, okay, like everything else, we need to put a time. You know, for, for major projects, it's definitely an uncertainty, I think, that um, we don't right. see in, in every other yeah. jurisdiction. Um, that said, I'm always trying to be an optimist here, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I do believe that uh, ultimately we will see the TMX be built and be moving crude I do oil. Too. Yeah. I, I don't know what the timeline is going to be, obviously. I can, it's hard to predict. Uh, but you've got, first of all, the, the government has got patient capital. Um, you know, they're not like a public company, you know, I think they, they've got the ability to stick this, you know, stick with this process. Uh, the second thing is there's a lot of political will now, uh, that the government has put so much money into this to see it through. Well, there are uh, two elections, the Alberta election and the federal election coming up in 2019 next year. So yeah, there is some imperative, uh, certainly in Alberta to uh, get the shovels in the ground, so to speak. Yeah. And ultimately kind of have these projects on track. Uh, prior to those elections. Yeah, well, cycles. let's hope that's enough of an impetus because it's really dragging out a lot and it is creating that cloud of uncertainty that needs to be unlifted. I mean, the LNG decision helped breathe some air into uh, in, in, into the industry a bit, but that's the natural gas side. Right, right? yeah, and we definitely do have big differentials for our, our oil well, right now. Well, I mean, this is it. I mean, how much, I mean, we're losing, ten, not millions, tens of millions of dollars of... Billions. Uh, per day, per, oh, day, per day, yeah. per day, yeah. It's just, it's just, it's just, uh, it's just crazy. We're going to talk more about that in subsequent podcasts. Thanks very much, everyone, for listening. It's been really delightful. If you'd like to read about some of these issues that both Jackie and I publish on, you can go to www.arcenergyinstitute.com and uh, go follow our blogs. And other than that, I'd say thanks for listening. Please come back next time. And uh, we look forward to another conversation. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks, Peter. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.